Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study where we study the scriptures uh, line upon line. Hopefully I'm coming through clearly, working with some new technology, and uh, I think everything should be uh, coming through clearly. Maybe you can just go ahead and uh, confirm that in the chat, and uh, I'll go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll get into tonight's study. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, Father, just so thrilled, so grateful, uh, just so appreciative of you, of Christ, of your word, of, of the brethren, and that we have this understanding, this knowledge that you've given to us, that we can conduct ourselves in light in a world of darkness. We thank you so much for this, Father. We thank you as we are approaching Passover, and uh, we just pray, Father, that you'll bless our understanding so that you can bless our observance of this uh, Passover season. We praise you, Lord God, and ask your blessing now on our study and our understanding and our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So, brethren, we are up to Psalm, and uh, God willing, we'll cover two Psalms tonight, uh, 117 and 118. 117 is a very, very short uh, Psalm. It's only two verses. And then uh, 118 will end what are known as the Hillel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms from 113 to 118. And these are Psalms that are traditionally read or sung uh, during the Passover meal. And um, no, I, don't, I won't say no doubt, but highly likely, very highly likely that uh, Psalm 118 is what Christ would have sang with his disciples before his crucifixion. So it's very, very meaningful to us. Let's, uh, let me share my screen. Let me just make sure I'm coming through clearly. Yes, loud and clear. <laughs> Brother Alan, I still sound fantastic. Oh, God be praised. The technology is working. Okay, let me see if I can share my screen. That didn't work last time, but I believe it will work this time. And uh, you should be able to see my screen right about now. Okay, so let's go back to the top here. Psalm 117 and uh, verse 1, hallelujah. Oh, praise Yehovah. This time it is directed to all the Gentile nations. All you nations, praise him, all you people. So, so this is definitely quite interesting to us, especially if this is a Passover uh, scripture or uh, read or sung during the Passover meal. Now we're directing our attention almost in a commanding way to the Gentile nations. You need to join this praise as well. All you nations, praise him, all you peoples. And so clearly we see here what we would call Passover victory. And if you remember in Psalm 2 and verse 1, the, the, the Gentiles, the, the, the peoples, the heathen, are in great animosity towards Christ. And the psalmist asked the question there, well, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So they're clearly in opposition to God. And now what we have is they're invited to praise God. So clearly there's been a conquest of their satanic will that has been conquered. And now they are being invited to praise Jehovah, not just Israel, not just Judah, but the Gentiles as well. And that was always, this is not something new, this is something that's always been in God's plan. If we look at Romans 15, the Rabbi Paul understood this. And he says in verse 9 of Romans 15, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And this word mercy in the Greek is elios, and it's the same word that's used in the Septuagint when we look at the Psalms, when the psalmists are talking about God's chesed, his, his covenant love, his loving kindness through covenant is translated mercy in English, but in the Hebrew it's chesed. This word is transit, translated elios in the Septuagint, in the Psalms. And so here, when we see, you know, in the New Testament uh, writings, we might think of mercy as just God's forgiveness that the Gentiles might glorify God for his forgiveness. But similar to what we see here in Psalm 117, where the psalmist 
is very clear that the nation should praise God, and he's going to say why, uh, for his chesed. This here that Rabbi Saul, Saul uh, in, in, um, the new, in the apostolic writings of Romans, he's telling the Gentiles to glorify God for his chesed, for his covenant love. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing unto your name. So this is, this is all planned. This is written. And again, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, now he, now he quotes Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles and laud him, all you people. So repeatedly in the scriptures, what we call Old Testament, but the early church would have just called their Bible, the scriptures, repeatedly, it's clear that the Gentiles, all the way back in, in uh, Genesis 12, have always been a part of God's plan. Despite their resistance and their persecution of God's people, God has always had them in the plan. In verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. And so we see this now being fulfilled in Psalm 117, when the psalmist is now inviting the Gentiles to praise Jehovah. And why? Why, why should the Gentiles praise Jehovah, the true God? Why? He explains in verse 2, for his merciful kindness, his loving kindness, his covenant love. This is why the Gentiles should praise Jehovah because of his covenant love. And his, his covenant is not with Gentiles. His covenant is with Israel. And so the Gentiles should praise Jehovah because of his faithful covenant love to Israel, which is a blessing to all mankind. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. Who is us? Is us the Gentiles? No. Us is Israel. Us is the covenant community. And the Gentiles are now being invited to participate in this covenant love that God has established. So the Gentiles come and praise him for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of Jehovah endures forever. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. His truth endures forever. And this, this covenant that he's entered into that the, the nations are raging against and doing everything they can to destroy it. It's established. God has spoken it, and it will never be reversed. In fact, it will be established forever. In Isaiah, and I just this brings me to mind one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, we'll just pick up a couple of verses, that the Gentiles will come to your light. Isaiah is speaking to Judah, and he's encouraging Judah, that the Gentiles will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is going to happen on the earth. And right now we're watching as this incredible uh, negative sentiment, hostile sentiment is just growing towards the people of Judah today. And in some cases, you know, rightfully so. These are not angels, but they are God's people. And now we see this current U.S. administration in, <laughs> believe this, believe it or not, the current U.S. administration in negotiation with Iran, this terrorist nation responsible for so much death and mayhem and, and has a, a pathological, murderous hatred toward Judah. And America is supposed to be the ally of Judah. They're surrounded by hostile neighbors in the Middle East. And now we have this current president negotiating with Iran to prop them up to give them all kinds of oil money and to strengthen their nuclear capabilities. And, and they have this pathological, murderous hatred toward Israel. They want to use nuclear power and, and, and uh, bombs and, and that technology to wipe Israel off the map, they say. And even if they have to destroy the whole earth and destroy themselves, they're happy to do so because of their ideology. And so this, we're, we're watching the, the earth unfold. Everything we're seeing, it's ultimately fulfilling Bible prophecy. 
And here we see that ultimately, though, they cannot do this. God's love, God's covenant love is forever. And so all you Gentiles that thought you could destroy God's covenant people, now it's time for you to come bow down, lick the dust off their feet, Isaiah says, and, and praise him. This, this is the true God. This is where it's all heading. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Because now these people of Judah and Israel have come to their senses. They finally acknowledge their God. They acknowledge the covenant and the Gentiles then have to acknowledge them. Right from Torah, right from Moses. He prophesied all of this. He says here, lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to you. And, and as they come to Judah, Judah will direct them to praise God. And so this is all part of this second exodus, this ultimate fulfillment of the, the Passover story. They come to you. Your son shall come from far and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. So that's it for Psalm 117. It's just two verses. It's part of this Passover story. It's part of this group of um, psalms that are sung on the meal during the meal, uh, the Passover meal before and after. And in Psalm 117 then, uh, quite a shift. The focus is now on the Gentiles, inviting them to praise Jehovah. Why? Because of his covenant love to Israel and Judah, which means that ultimately all mankind is blessed as, it's, as it was prophesied by God himself in Genesis 12 to Abraham, that all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. So we see that being fulfilled in Psalm 117. So now we come to Psalm 118. Fascinating Psalm. Fascinating Psalm. And a Psalm, I believe, that reflects Christ and the work of Christ and what he did when he was on earth and what he will do when he returns. And so it doesn't say who the author of this psalm is. My sense is that it's King David and that the experience of King David as the monarch over Israel, God, Christ then came to fulfill what was prophesied in this psalm. So fascinating psalm. So we can take this psalm as the experience of David, King David, because Christ himself quoted it, we know that it reflects the experience of Christ himself. And because we are grafted into the covenant, we also can express this experience. And, and fascinating for us to think about these things as we are in our Passover preparation. Psalm 118 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto Jehovah. We should be people of gratitude. Let's not forget how God has intervened in our lives. And so there's this invitation now to God's people to give thanks to him. Why should we give thanks to him? Because he is good. He's good. And because his mercy, that's his chesed, his covenant love, or in the Greek, the elios, it endures forever. This covenant that God has with Jacob, it's a forever covenant. No matter what, he will not lose himself from this covenant. He is faithful to what he has spoken. And so God will be the God of Jacob forever. That's what it says in Luke 1, the gospel according to Luke. That God will be the God of Jacob forever. Therefore, Jacob must be forever, despite the murderous pathological hatred that those who have been hijacked by Satan have for the covenant people. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. He, he, he doesn't go against his word. He cannot break his character. This is who he is. He's good. And his, his covenant love, it's forever. Let Israel, the Greek says, let the house of Israel now say that his chesed endures forever. This is the insight. This is, we, we cannot understand the Bible. Anybody who's reading the Bible, and there are many, anybody who's preaching the Bible, and there are many, anybody who claims to be a teacher of the Bible, and there are many, 
that don't understand God's covenant, his covenant faithfulness, his covenant love. They may say interesting things. They may get one or two things right. You can take a, a paragraph of the Bible and any intelligent person can maybe make a sermon about that and say how intelligent, how, how beautiful that particular paragraph is. But they will never understand fully the full richness, the comprehensiveness, the cohesiveness, the, the complete impact of the word of God if they don't understand this. That his mercy, his cassette, his covenant love toward Israel is forever. This defines the whole Bible. You cannot under the whole the story of the Bible is the story of God's love for Israel and and how it came to be, the, the sort of prehistory, and how it came to be, and ultimately what it is leading toward. So let the house of Israel, let Israel now say that his covenant love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, this is the priesthood, that his cassette endures forever. So, so Israel must know this. Let's make sure the priesthood understands this. And then similar to Psalm 115, we covered this. It was Israel. Then it got more specific with the house of Aaron. And then it got broader. That them now that fear the Lord. So Israel, Aaron, them that fear the Lord say that his mercy endures forever. And we believe that those that fear the Lord is, is a catch-all. That if you are not part of the house of Israel, but you're a God-fearer, you've attached yourself to Israel, and you've rejected your pagan gods, and you've accepted the, the God of Israel, similar to the Egyptians coming out uh, uh, out, of, out of Egypt, that they accepted the, the God of Israel. And throughout time, there's these Gentiles that attach themselves to the house of Israel or the house of Judah and praise Jehovah. They're considered God-fearers. So let them now that fear the Lord say, his cassette endures forever. That the, We have to have this understanding. So everybody say this, because this, this defines God's character, and it defines the plot. We don't understand the story unless we understand this. And we certainly can't understand the Passover story unless we understand this. That you know, Christ didn't come to earth just to save all man, mankind so mankind can, when, when men die, they can go to heaven. That's what you would believe if you listen to most Christian preachers. That Christ so loved the world, God so loved the world, he sent his son, he sent Christ, so that anybody who dies can go to heaven. That's Sorry, that's not the story. We cannot have the deep insight into the word of God unless we understand his covenant love. And that everything he does is, is animated by his character and by his commitment and by his oath and what he swore to Abraham. And what, what uh, Jacob inherited, and what he is committed to, to see come to pass, no matter all the opposition. In fact, the opposition, the, the satanic opposition, ultimately is just furthering God's cause. So as said, endures forever. And now the psalmist explains, and again, we can see this on three levels, the king, probably King David, certainly Christ. But we can also say, yeah, I, I've had this experience as well. And we can just think back to, to Psalm 116, which is very personal. Uh, this is also very personal. God is a personal God. God is a personal God that is in relationship with you personally. He knows you personally. He watches over you personally. He supports you personally. He provides for you personally and for me. So although we understand this big picture and what's in and most people fail to understand the Bible because they can't grasp the big picture. They can't stop thinking about themselves for more than 10 seconds so that they can read the Bible and understand what act- what's actually happening. But even though we do have this big picture view and understand God's plan, we also have this personal experience with him. The psalmist says, I called upon Jehovah in distress. And the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And this is equally true of King David, for sure, but of Christ himself. When God was on earth, he was in distress, sweating drops of blood and calling upon his father. And his father answered him and set him, as he is now, in a large place. The psalmist says, Jehovah is on my side. I will not fear. 
what can man do unto me? And this is extreme. It's not so much its courage as it is just this realization that the psalmist has that God's on my side. Why should I fear what men can do to me? And Christ had this experience himself. All these dogs surrounding him, wanting to destroy him and understanding that the Father is on his side. Hebrews 13, with the same situation, where we have the Hebrew Christians, these are Hebrews who have accepted Christ, who are now facing extreme persecution, most likely Apostle Paul encouraging them to just really understand the vision, the plot, the story, the narrative, and then says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me again, quoting the psalm. There's so much insight and beauty in, the, in this. In fact, Psalm 118, I believe, is the most quoted psalm in the Gospels or in the whole New Testament canon. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto to me. And so here we are. This was uh, the apostles' encouragement to the Hebrews. And here we are. It, just for the sake of the archive, this is March 20. 22, and our world is falling apart. We were told, going back to 2016 through to 2020, how horrible the president, the orange man, the president, uh, President Trump, how evil he was, how terrible he was, that he was going to call, if he got elected, he would uh, set the world on fire, he would cause World War III, that he would destroy the economy, that he was a racist. And it's so amazing. He was there for four years. And you know what? About the worst we got from him was some tweets that were annoying and maybe a bit off color. But he had a he created a roaring, the best economy the world has ever seen from the greatest country the world has ever known, the greatest empire the world has ever known, American empire. Greatest economy, everybody was doing so well, or much better than they were previously, and no war for four years. No war. Now, if you make your money off the military-industrial complex, that was a very difficult four-year period for you. Your, Your bank account was running dry. If you made your money off drug trafficking, and human trafficking, and, and the sex trafficking of children, and he shut the border, your bank account was running dry. So these very powerful people who are very evil people, who were having, you know, money is the root of evil, they were having their bank accounts running dry, they whipped us up into a frenzy. that we couldn't help but just hate this man. We didn't know why. We just hated him. We used to love him. He was a celebrity. Everybody watched his shows. He many times indicated he was interested, he, or he didn't say he was interested, but he could be president one day, and if he did, what he would do, and he had never changed his tune, very consistent over decades. But we were wired and programmed to hate him, because he would start World War III and he would destroy the economy. So we got rid of him. And then we brought in the adult, who was going to restore order and, and peace and credibility. And here we are, in free fall. It's March 2022. We are in free fall. Life as we know it is collapsing. War is back on the agenda. So those who make their money off the military industrial complex, their bank accounts are being fattened again. The border is wide open. Those who make their money off the trafficking, the sex trafficking of children, of babies, of women, of, of drugs. Their bank accounts are fattening up again. And everybody's fine. All the, 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 the kleptocracy is doing really well now. And we're on the verge. We're, we're actually talking about World War III. And we're talking about enriching rogue states with nuclear technology. And everything is in free fall. And we're actually talking now about famine and food shortage 
So th this is what we have when we were we were told this is what we would have under Orange Man. And now we've got the adult apparently in the room. And this is what we have now. We're in free fall. And with it, calamity. We're on the verge of extreme. Un this is unprecedented. The world has never been in this state. We've never had this many people on the planet. We've never had this much technology on the planet. We've never had this, this capability of uniting the, the planet for evil in the way that it can be done now. So this, what we're facing is unprecedented. And so it wouldn't be unusual for Christians to feel fearful. It, it wouldn't be unreasonable for, for Christians to, who really understand what's going on in the state of affairs to experience a bit of panic. But then we have to come to the point of the Hebrews who are facing persecution, terrible persecution at the time, to say, we, mo we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do. These are evil people. When you see what they will do to a child, then all bets are off. When you see what they will do to a child in the womb, all bets are off. What they will do to you and I, there's no limit when you see what they're capable of to a child. And so we have to come to this place where we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, like the psalmist, like the apostle encouraging the Hebrews. I'm not going to fear what men can do to me. And this is exactly what Christ instructed us in Matthew 10 and verse 28, that we fear not them which kill the body. That's what they do. They are puppets of the devil who uses death as his threat, these death threats. And, and we're wired to want to live. And so they use this as a weapon. But Christ says to us, do not fear them which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in the fire. So this is just a, a, a command. If we're feeling fearful, this is a command. This is an imperative from Christ. That, oh well, we brought this upon ourselves. We're here now. And just, just studying history, just studying, you know, uh, what the communists were capable of, the, the, how they crashed the economy and caused people to, by the tens of millions, to starve to death. And they oversaw that operation. And now we find ourselves, the communists have taken over and they're crashing the economy. And tens of millions are going to starve to death. And then there's just this, on, on top of that, this, this mass murder. It's all in history, and it's all repeating itself. And we have to be able to look it in the eye and say, that's fine, because the worst they can do is kill the body. And then it's over. And then there's the resurrection and eternal life. What they cannot take away from us is eternal life. Christ, the Father, they can take eternal life away from us. Back to Psalm 118, verse 7, the psalmist says, Yehovah takes my part with them that help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire upon them that hate me. Again, Christ also had this experience that, that God is going to support those who support him. God is going to support those who support us. God supported those who supported King David. And therefore, I shall see my desire upon them that hate me. In Psalm 54 and verse 4, he says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. So, so God does work through men. And as they support us, he supports them. He blesses them as they support us. He says, He has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen his desire upon my enemies. And Christ had many enemies able to see God's desire upon them. We have many who hate us, and we will see God's desire upon them. The power of Christ now to carry out his will, just the opening verse of, of Revelation, that God's, God's desire will prevail. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel 
unto his servant John. So we get the sense that there's a will here. There's a being that has a will that nobody can withstand. This, this is going to happen as he says. And so Revelation, we see all the enemies converge uh, in this ultimate conflict and, and crisis, and God's will will be done. And that's what we have to remember, and that's, that's how we have to uh, frame our perception of what is going on in the world around us. Verse 8 of Psalm 118, It is better to trust in Jehovah than to put confidence in man. And unfortunately, we're in a time now, it's just, it's just how the world unfolds, but we're in a period now where we've lost that trust in God. Religion has been kind of excised out of society. And you're crazy if you believe in God. You know, unless you're Will Smith. <laughs> is, uh, uh, nobody cares about the Academy Awards, and, but there was some uh, just mayhem the other night when he resorted to violence. And then afterwards, he's talking about God. God has called him. There's a calling on his soul. And he's there to love because God is calling him to love. And he's to walk in light. And, and all of these people who hate God, the minute we talk about God, they call us crazy. And there's no room for God in society. But this man, a God among them, suddenly he can talk about God. So God suddenly invoke when it's convenient. But the truth of the matter is there's no place for God in this society. And we get infected by the world around us. And so you look at something as uh, simple as this um, pandemic that we faced for two years, and then suddenly it's over. I don't talk about it anymore. But for two years we were terrorized by this thing. And even you see brethren lose trust in God. Not say, well, if I get sick, I will trust God. No, I I have to have the vaccine. I, I don't know what's in it. But I believe these men, they must love me. They must have my best interests at heart. And even though it's a brand new technology that's going to alter my DNA, I trust them. So I'll let them inject me. And, and you know, again, I say different people are in different situations. We have to have wise counsel. What I'm speaking out against are those that vocalized in a very strong manner their trust in man. It's not like, you know what, I trust God, but I'm going to take reasonable precautions. I'm going to wash my hands, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to eat well. This is one thing. But to act like the world, where the vaccine is our only hope, and we can't trust God, this is scary. That's where I take exception. And it's better here, this is very clear, it's just it's kind of understated. It's better to trust in Jehovah than to put confidence in man. And they're going to put us in a place where we feel we have no choice. We have to trust man. We have to, well, ultimately, people are going to take the mark of the beast because they have confidence in man. And they don't believe that God will see us through. So the psalmist just says it and he repeats it. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So we just have to wire ourselves to say no matter what making the big decisions early, I'm going to trust God. I'll walk by faith and not by sight, and let the chips fall where they may. He says, all nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. There is that name of the Lord again, understanding his identity, his character, his power. Even though all these nations are surrounding this king, he will cut them off in the name of the Lord. And even though all nations surrounded Christ and will surround him, he'll cut them off and destroy them in the name of the Lord. Here in Isaiah 14, speaking of these nations surrounding the chosen of God, here in Isaiah 14 and verse 24, Isaiah prophesies, The Lord of hosts has sworn, he's sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. So, so, God is saying, what I have thought, what I have planned, what I, what I have decided, nobody can stop it. It's things, no matter what it looks like, everything's going to unfold just as I have willed. 
So the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This, this is how we can trust God. Excuse me. This is what the word of God says. God's will will be done. And then what is this will that he has? What is it that he has purposed? That, that will happen exactly as he has thought. That I will break the Assyrian in my land. So as the world unfolds, we know that ultimately this, this is the conclusion of the matter. The Assyrian, this is the king of the north, is going to come into the promised land. And will be destroyed there. He's going to lead all nations with him. And all the nations will be anti-Christ. But they'll all be destroyed together. And God says, it's going to, the conclusion of the matter is that I will break the Antichrist, the Assyrian, in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. So he's a great oppressor. This is, this is uh, Pharaoh on steroids. This is the Exodus at scale. This is what's happening here. And then he says, this is the purpose that is purposed. Where, where is this purpose purposed? In, in, in sort of what act does the Assyrian flex his muscle and get destroyed? Is it at the beginning of the story or is it at the end of the story? Isaiah says, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. When the whole earth is saying, who can make war with him? When the whole earth is worshipping him, that's what this is about. It, it's this sort of Nimrod fulfillment. But we know it's not speaking of Nimrod. Nimrod just set the wheels in motion and, and created the ideology and the, the vision and the dream of controlling the whole earth. But here it's fulfilled. And this is the purpose that then is purposed upon the whole earth, because they're all going to follow him. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon what? Who? All the nations. So at this time, all the nations have gone with the Antichrist. And they're all Antichrist. They're all against Christ. And Christ is going to destroy the Assyrian, as well as all the nations that are in hand with him. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? This is what we're talking about. That God will have his way. And his hand is stretched out. And who shall turn it back? So we, this is where we have to just walk by faith. We just read the word of God. And this is what we believe. Because sometimes we're going to look up and we're going to look around. And it's going to look kind of the opposite of what the word says. We're going to look up and we're going to look around. And it's going to look like, wow. The people of God are, are losing. In fact, the scripture actually says that, that the Antichrist will prevail over the saints. And so if we don't know the scriptures, we're going to think, well, God can't be with those saints because they're losing. He must, he must be with the saints that are betraying him because they're being honored. And so if we're walking by sight, we're going to get swept up in this deception. But if we just stick to the word of God, it doesn't matter how things are looking right now. Ultimately, the Assyrian is going to have the primacy and the whole world is going to go with the Assyrian. And he's going to march into the promised land where he will be destroyed. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out and who shall turn it back? And so this is. The fulfillment of Christ will ultimately fulfill this, what we see here in Psalm 118 and verse 11. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. You can imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen that when bees attack. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. And it's interesting to me that uh, Christ tells us that we will be hated and persecuted and some of us even killed. Why? For the name of the Lord. And so there's someone who understands the gospel at, 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 in such a way that they're preaching it, understanding the name of the Lord. 
And, and we are hated for this. And we are persecuted for the name of the Lord. And we are destroyed for the name of the Lord. But then ultimately, Christ will destroy them in the name of the Lord. So the name of the Lord is going to become much more prevalent in the days ahead. And so we just need to keep thinking about what exactly does this mean? And how do we preach it? Verse 13. He says, you have thrust sore at me that I might fall. But the Lord helped me. You really were out to destroy me. But Jehovah came through. And, and here, this is Christ's experience as well. And we know this because he quoted this psalm to capture his experience. But the evil men thrust sore at him that he might fall. But God helped him. Just as God helped David. And just as he'll help you and he'll help me. God, God always comes through. His, his cassette endures forever. We can trust him forever. And last week I was trying to remember the name of the elder and uh, some of the brethren typed in the chat. It was Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp, the elder. Polycarp of Smyrna. Pastor Murray also typed that in. I think it was uh, Brother Gary and, and Pastor Murray that uh, reminded me. I just couldn't remember his name. But that was the Polycarp. He was uh, 86 years serving the Lord. And he said, why would he turn his back on him now? God has been so good to him. Why would he turn his back? So he didn't fear what men could do to him. And I think this praising the Lord and giving, go give thanks and being grateful, it's part of being faithful. That we don't forget the goodness of the Lord and what he's done for us. And here, this is our experience. It was the king's experience. Certainly it was Christ's experience. And we see this in Isaiah 53, part of this Passover. It makes sense that this is in the Passover canon. Because in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, kind of reflecting this Psalm 118 and verse 13, in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, he says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Christ. He has put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So they will thrust sore, and they did, that Christ would fall. But the Lord helped him. Back to Psalm 118. Again, this is Christ's experience, as well as most likely King David, as well as our own. And part of this Passover observance. Yehovah is my strength and song. Where does our strength come from? It, it has to come from God. And, and although historically we've we've been blessed by this uh i call it the pax americana all of us in the west have been in fact i think the whole world to one degree or another some more so than others have been blessed by the the strength of this superpower uh america which has at its core a, a, a biblical concept of law and order which is now being completely erased. These people who are so moral, you know, uh, these elite, these, these celebrities who want to wag their finger at us and, and virtue signal all day long. They have no virtue. They're evil. They are filthy. Their, their moral code is fluid. It's just, it's just rhetoric. Why should we run after them? Why, why should we try to conform ourselves to their ideas when they are morally bankrupt? Uh, our our moral code comes from the word of God. And that's where our strength comes from. Even though the nation around us is collapsing, or the nations around us and our governments have betrayed us, and the future, to say it mildly, does not look bright. Our strength comes from God. And he says, the Lord is my strength and song. And before Christ was crucified, he sang with his disciples. He faced this excruciating pain and the anticipation of it, singing about the strength of the Lord. And, and we, this, is, this is the frame where he says, take up your cross and follow me. So we need to study what he did so that we can be like him. The Lord is my strength and song and has become 
my salvation. And so if this is King David, salvation meaning his deliverance. So this is a physical deliverance from the threat that he was facing. That's what, that's what that means. In the same way, Christ would mean that he will be saved from this physical threat. But also there's a spiritual salvation that ultimately this whole covenant is leading not just to a physical salvation, it's leading to a spiritual salvation. And that is all coming from God's covenant love. This is why we have to understand that his mercy, is, his kased, endures forever. And the salvation is baked into this covenant love. He says, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the dwelling places of the righteous. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. Where, where the righteous dwell, because of this great deliverance, there's going to be a great voice of rejoicing and salvation. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And this is, again, part of the Passover story, that it is God who delivers, just as he delivered ancient Israel with his right, mighty right hand, in the same way he's going to deliver modern, let's say modern Israel, the, the end-time Israel, and the first fruits. He has shown strength with his arm, it says in Luke 1, so pointing back to again to this psalm. He, he sends the Lord, and he says the, the, the prophecy, he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. So we are surrounded by the proud. They, 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 they're unhinged. They're drunk on power. They're, they're drunk on wealth. They're dealing in trillions of dollars. They're drunk on wealth. They're drunk on power. They're drunk on their ego. And, and we, we are subjected to their whims as we, as, as we remove rule, the rule of law. As we remove biblical principles, now it's just power. That's what it's all about. It's what it's always been about. We got fooled by their rhetoric. But the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This is what we look to. And so the same arm, that same strength, we see introducing Christ's entrance into the earth in the opening chapter of Luke. Back to Psalm 118. The right hand of Jehovah is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It's like we really need to understand this. This, this is how he saves. With his, his power and his might. This is what we look toward. And then he says, I shall not but live and declare the works of the Lord. And again, uh, King David would have been delivered. Although he was under threat of death, died in an old as an old man. But this is Christ's experience. He says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And in Revelation 1.18, he says that. He says, I'm he that lives. They, they put him to death. They crucified him. They destroyed him. They meant for him to perish. And here in Revelation 1 and verse 18, he says, I am he that lives and was dead. And behold... I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. This is who we trust. He's, he's the forerunner. He's, he's done it. And now we can follow him and say, I shall not die. They, they, they want to threaten us with death, and we can say, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord, just as Christ did. Psalm 118 and verse 18. The Lord has chastened me sore. Remember in Isaiah 53, it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise Christ. And so Christ, the psalm is capturing Christ's experience. The Lord has chastened me sore, but he has not given me over unto death. No, indeed not. Three days, three nights later, he brought him up out of the grave. In fact, in Colossians 1 and verse 18, to show that he's not been given over to death, the Apostle Paul says, and he is the head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church. And we have to discern the Lord's body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So Christ was not given over unto death. He was brought back to life from the grave. And he's considered the firstborn, not the only 
the firstborn from the dead. He will always be the firstborn from the dead. But there will be many born from the dead. Psalm 118 and verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. Again, the tabernacle of the righteous. There's the gates of righteousness are in Zion. And Christ is able to declare, open the gates. And he says in Hebrews 2 that he will sing praises in the midst of the congregation. He will indeed do that. And we can say the same thing. Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go into them. That we will be welcomed there. And we will praise the Lord there. The gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. And here in Isaiah 26, verse 2, speaking of these gates, he says, Open you the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. So this is Israel now and Judah can come into these gates and praise the Lord. And the Gentiles will be welcomed to come into these gates and praise the Lord. Psalm 118 and verse 21. I will praise you, for you have heard me and have become my salvation. So again, King David's experience, Christ's experience, and we are followers of Christ. This is our experience. We will praise him. He he hears us. His ears are open to our cry, and he will become our deliverance. Now, this verse is, is the verse that Christ quoted. So we know he was pointing to this psalm as his own experience. And it's quoted repeatedly. All the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all quote this without exception. And it's repeatedly quoted by the apostles. The stone, verse 22, which the builders refused. They didn't want it. This was the foundation stone upon which all the buildings should be built. Cornerstone. They didn't want it. They rejected it. No thanks. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. He's the firstborn from the dead. Everything will be built from him. And they rejected him. And just to show you how often this is quoted, Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures, in the Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Didn't, Didn't you read that in Psalm 118? This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes what he has done, how he has come through and saved the, 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 the stone that was rejected, how they persecuted him, how they destroyed him, how they thought they caused him to perish. And God took him and made him the head of the corner. Everything will be built from him. He will always have the preeminence. And it's marvelous in our, in our eyes. In Mark 12, Mark says, or quotes Christ saying in verse 10, And have you not read this scripture, Psalm 118? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. That important. Just repeat it over and over. This is the insight that Psalm 118 reflects Christ's experience. Mark 12 and verse 11. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Luke 20 verse 17. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? Well, what do you think this means? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. So this is just repeatedly quoted in in Isaiah 28, uh, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I I just realized I didn't see John. Maybe John didn't quote it. I'll have to check that. Maybe somebody could check that for me. John has a different focus, but in the synoptic gospels, they all quote it. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. They should not, they should have, if they knew their scriptures, they should not have rejected the Messiah. In Acts 4 and verse 11, he says, this is the stone which was set at nothing by you builders. You completely disregarded it, which has become the head of the corner. And we are his followers. 
So it should be no surprise to us if we are set at nothing, if we are betrayed, if we are spat upon, rejected, because we will not let go of this cornerstone. And then like him, if we are, if we are then exalted, when Christ you know, acts and returns and, and, and enforces his will on the earth and remembers those who were faithful to him. In Ephesians 2 and verse 20, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Repeated by Paul and teaching the Ephesians, such a powerful book that's in the archives, such an amazing book to help us understand this calling. First Peter 2 and verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Just repeatedly. You also, like him, as lively stones, are built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, now he's uh, uh, quoting Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confused or confounded. So we just have to believe in this cornerstone, which the Jews rejected, we cherish. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, that same stone is made the head of the corner. So it's just read this is just a quoted psalm over and over and over again. Back to Psalm 118, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Christ fully quoted this psalm and, and the way um, the Jews would understand the scripture, he would just have to refer to a passage and they would have the whole passage memorized. So they would understand that this whole passage, his disciples would certainly understand this whole passage. You can't just take one part of it and not realize the whole passage is speaking of Christ's experience. And then it would totally make sense that he would sing this psalm with them. This is the last thing he would sing with them before facing his persecution, that he, in fact, is this stone that they are rejecting and destroying that will be made the head of the corner. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Then he says, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I think, you know, whenever I've heard this verse, I've never really heard it in context. Now that I'm studying it in context, it's like, okay, this is the day which the Lord has made. I've always thought this is the Sabbath. This is the day which the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Or you might say it of any day. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But in context, this is the Passover. This is the night that he was betrayed and rejected and and would become the, the, the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner. So this Passover day, this is the day that the Lord made. It, it's by his design. It's his will. It, it's, his, it, it's what he has architected. And now that we understand what he's doing, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad. And again, you can imagine him singing this with his disciples, knowing he's about to be betrayed, knowing he's about to be destroyed, saying, the Lord made this day. Let's rejoice. When, when, when um, Peter says, oh, this will never happen to you, he says, get behind me, Satan, because you savor the things of men and not the things of God. This is the day which Jehovah has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25, save now, I beg you, O Lord. O Lord, I beg you, send now prosperity. There's a turnaround. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And so this is another part of the psalm that's repeatedly quoted in Matthew 21 and verse 9. And the multitude, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the multitudes that went before, and, and this actually, the same, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord in Matthew 23. At the end of Matthew 23, before coming into Matthew 24, Christ says to the Pharisees, you won't see me again 
until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So he's coming and they're going to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And here in Matthew 21 and verse 9, and the multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There it is. He said, so here it is here in Matthew 23. He says, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the, and just, I, I should have quoted a bit further. You do this, but you won't see me again until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Here in Mark 11, uh, verse 9, they went before and they followed Christ saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 13, 35, the counterpart to Matthew 24, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and truly I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 19, verse 38, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. He'll destroy them in the name of the Lord. We will declare him in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Back to Psalm 118, verse 27. God is Jehovah, which has shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. And here in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, speaking of this glorious light that he has shown us in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, uh, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we see this constant, the, the Psalms are powerful. We just have to take the time to read them and line upon line and in context. And why was Christ quoting them? He says, you are my God, verse 28. I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. And I just see here, um, I don't think John quotes verse 22. Thanks, Pastor Murray. So, so John, yeah, he had a different agenda in his writing. But certainly in the Synoptic Gospels, they all make it clear how Christ uh, taught Psalm 118. And challenge them with Psalm 118. And, and, and we see Psalm 118 is the pivotal moment of the Passover. And this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice in it. And this is what we're, we're heading up to now. He ends this Psalm, verse 29. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. How, how he began. This is how the song is like opening brackets, closing brackets, all the story in the middle. Oh, and now that we understand this Passover story. This, this covenant love. Oh, give thanks unto Jehovah, for he is good. For his cassette, or the Elios, this covenant love, it endures forever. And so, uh, as we now gather, next week, God willing, Pastor Murray will show, uh, share with me the Q&A. So we won't cover any new content next week. And then the following week is the week of Passover. So we, there will not be a Bible study that week. So we can just stay focused on preparing our uh, Passover messages. But certainly, brethren, I hope covering these psalms at this time leading up to the Passover season have been very uh, beneficial, very helpful. And certainly this psalm, and I, I, I personally believe uh, that this is the psalm that Christ would have sung with his disciples before facing his death, his crucifixion, and, and that they would afterward come back and study this hymn that they sang together and just fully comprehend what it is he was saying. And so now it's for us to fully comprehend this, to comprehend the goodness of the Lord, to comprehend his covenant love, to comprehend that it, it endures forever, and that Christ came to earth and suffered as he did because of this covenant love, this covenant love for you, this covenant love for me, his covenant love for his covenant people, and, and this covenant love to bless all of mankind, every human being that has ever lived, every human being that will ever live, is going to be blessed by this covenant love. 
O give thanks unto Jehovah, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Brethren, if you have any questions, any comments, any thoughts, uh, please send them to us, uh, Adrian Davis at cgicanada.org. Uh, many of you are in touch with Pastor Murray all the time. Uh, send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts. Next week, God willing, we'll be together. We'll answer any questions you, or try to attempt to answer any questions you have. Uh, we'll share your comments. And uh, God willing, we can all sort of just come together and get in the right frame of mind before the Passover. Uh, God bless you, brethren. What a journey we're on. Uh, what a world. <laughs> what a time to be alive. What a time to praise God. God bless you. Jesus Christ is Lord.